God, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for Mark and for Peter and his words and his experiences. God, thank you for who you are, for the fact that you took on flesh, that you made yourself low, lower than the angels to become like one of your creatures. God, what an amazing thing. And we get to study about that account. We are so blessed. Uh, help us to realize that. Help us not to take it for granted, but to uh, soak in everything we can about your word and to not just sit on it, but to take and share that with others. God, help us to be more in love with you today than we were yesterday. We pray this thing in your name. Amen. All right. Before we jump into Mark 13, which is a big chapter, uh, let's zoom out for a little bit and consider uh, some of the main themes of Mark. What are some of the main themes, some of the main keywords that we've seen in Mark, and how have they resonated with you? How have you been impacted by what Mark is trying to communicate to us through his gospel? You guys recall any of the key words that we've been looking at in Mark? Yeah. Jesus is a suffering servant, right? We see that over and over again. That was his purpose. That's why he came. Not to be served, but to serve. Uh, and yeah, we're really getting into that as we're headed up to the cross. That is the, the epitome of his service on earth. Yes. Yeah, the fact that the king has made himself low to suffer in our place. Not that he isn't worthy of being king. Not that he doesn't own that right and that authority. Another key word that we have in Mark. He absolutely has all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet he suffers so that he can serve. It's beautiful. A couple others that we looked at um, was immediately, remember, we see Mark just flying through the gospel immediately, 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 moving from one thing to the next. He's kind of flying, and he's doing that so that he can bring the cross into focus, so the cross can be central. He's all the time marching toward Jerusalem, trying to show how that was the the mission of of this suffering servant, this king who became a servant. He came to die, right? And we have to keep in mind also, it is speaking to what group of people? Written to what group of people? Not to the Jews like Matthew, right? It was written to the Romans. We've got to wake up. You guys need some coffee. We all need a little bit more coffee this morning. All right. Well, speaking of uh, the kingdom that you mentioned, Jerry, could I get somebody to briefly contrast the disciples' understanding of the kingdom of God and our understanding of what the kingdom of God is? Were they expecting a, a physical kingdom or a spiritual kingdom? Physical. They were expecting a physical kingdom, right? For Jesus to come and to set up his throne and to rule and to reign with scepter in hand and to put the Romans underneath his, his feet, right? And that's what they were expecting. But Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not of this world, right? He was talking about a spiritual kingdom that had already come. He said, the kingdom is at hand. It is here, right? And so does that mean that the Old Testament promises should be understood allegorically? No? So how do we compare and contrast those two? If they were expecting a a physical kingdom, and yet Jesus didn't bring a, a physical kingdom, he said, the kingdom is here, but it was in a spiritual sense. Why should we not understand the Old Testament prophecies to be allegorical? I agree with you, but 
we don't have the authority to take and twist God's word, right? To take these, these promises that he made to a people in a very real sense and to understand them in a non-real sense, right? We don't have that authority. Yeah, there is a spiritual aspect, spiritual component, and there will be a, a very real, very true physical future uh, establishment of his kingdom, right? It just didn't come when the disciples were expecting it to come. And this kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, like Matthew likes to put it, uh, does it consist of just the Jews? No, it's Jews and Gentiles alike, right? That's part of the mystery of the New Testament we see in Ephesians 3. So we need to keep these things in mind as we're getting ready to consider some really heavy stuff concerning the kingdom in the coming weeks. Uh, it, the kingdom of God includes the church, however, it's not limited to the church. The church and God's kingdom, those terms are not synonymous, though they have a lot of overlap. And so I wanted to go back and show you this uh, diagram that we had. I think it was back in chapter 4 when we were looking at the parables of the kingdom. And so, again, we see that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, we should understand those to be synonymous terms. But when Matthew was writing to the Jews, he didn't want to offend them by using God's holy name, so he referred to it primarily as the kingdom of heaven. And so this kingdom of God uh, has within it the church. We are a part of the church, right? The people of God uh, post-resurrection being indwelt forever by the Holy Spirit. And so there's some overlap. The church is within the kingdom of God, but not absolutely synonymous with the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God also includes the saints of the Old Testament, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, uh, Moses, all those guys. Uh, they were a part of God's kingdom. And then also looking toward the future, it will include the tribulational saints and the saints that come to Christ during the millennium, even though the church at that point is gone. So they're not going to be a part of the church because the church will have been raptured. We will be uh, with our Lord and they're going to be a, a separate group, but they're still going to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so even as the, the church is within the kingdom, it's not quite synonymous, just as the local church, people who come here in this local building aren't necessarily a part of Christ's church. They aren't necessarily a part of the bride of Christ, a part of uh, his, his people just because they walk through the doors of church. So again, just by way of review and laying that as a little bit of groundwork for what we're going to be looking at in the coming chapters, any thoughts or questions on that? It's a, so a big topic. So the thinking out of the church for people who Maybe they do confess Christ. There are a lot of people who confess Christ who are Christians in name only. But like Matthew 7 says, they'll come to Jesus in that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We cast out demons. We did all these. And they'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I, I never knew you. Just because you call me Lord doesn't make you my servant. Doesn't make you a part of his bride. Yes, Jerry. Well, if I may make one other comment, going back to this, the servant, the word servant is the word, if I'm not mistaken, that we get our word minister from. And I really dislike that word minister because in our culture ever since a long time, that word has the connotation of being somewhat elevated. Like, Prime Minister of 
Great Britain or whatever, it's the highest official, and we just, we just I know growing up, I remember people using that term, minister, as some elevated position, which is exactly the opposite of what we should get from that word. Yeah, if we're seeking to imitate Christ, we shouldn't be seeking to elevate ourselves. There is a, a very interesting relationship between kurios, the word for Lord, and, and doulos, the word for slave and servant. And it's interesting how Jesus really embodies both, even though they're kind of contrasted. Like, you have a Lord up here, and then you have a servant who serves the Lord. Uh, Jesus, he maintained his position as Lord, right? He didn't give that up but he took on this role of doulos, this role of servant. Um, and He's the only one that can it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're never gonna be elevated to that Lord status, right? He is unique in that. All right, good. Andy, and then we'll move on. <clears throat> so, um, what should be our um, position as Christians in this world when it comes to Israel? I'm talking like, modern Jewish people. Yeah, we should love them. We should preach the gospel to them. There are a lot of people who have this, uh, this straw man understanding of dispensationalists. And they'll say that dispensationalists, people who uh, believe in a future for Israel, that they think that Israel is already part of God's people and they don't need to be evangelized. Um, I just heard somebody say that. This, I think it was Doug Wilson this week. And, and he's a smart guy, right? Um, not one... I, I listen to him often, and I don't think that he would like intentionally misrepresent somebody. But yeah, he was talking about how, uh, and I think that there are groups of people within dispensationalism that that think that way. But it's not okay to paint with a broad brush. Um, we don't think that Israel is saved. Uh, Romans 11 says that one day all Israel will be saved, but that doesn't mean they're going to be saved by a means other than their submission to Christ as Lord, right? They're going to come to this understanding that they need Jesus and they're going to be saved the same way that anybody else is, by grace through faith. Um, change of heart. The change of heart, yeah. And that. we be praying for peace of Israel? And... Yeah. yeah, I think so. I, I don't think that it's ultimately going to come. Um, we, we have very clearly laid out for us the, the future of Israel, right? And it's not what we would describe as a peaceful one. No, but no. we should be praying for Israel. We should be praying for their salvation. Um, God will peace do that in his time. Peace of Israel is coming when the Messiah returns. Yes. And when our king returns. Amen. All right. Well, let's catch up to where we are in our text. We've been looking at quite a bit of Jesus in the temple. Uh, starting all the way back in chapter 11, we were introduced there to the Passion Week of Jesus, to the final week of his incarnation. In Mark 11:1, 1, it says, as they approached Jerusalem, remember Mark all the time, he's marching along in his telling of this narrative of Jesus going to Jerusalem, looking toward the cross. So they approached Jerusalem at Bethany and Bethphage, near the Mount of Olives, and he sent two of his disciples. We're going to see the Mount of Olives in our text today. But here we see this is the triumphal entry in, back in Mark 11. And if we glance down a little bit in Mark 11, 11, it says that that very night Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany 
with the twelve since it was already late. So Jesus came in with the triumphal entry that night. He went to look at the temple. The next day, in verse 12, it says that when they had left Bethany, he, he became hungry and he went back toward the temple. And that's the day that he goes in. He clears out the temple. He uh, overturns the tables. He sets everybody straight and says, no, my father's house is not a den of robbers. You guys need to knock this off. Get out of here. And then down in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says that when evening came, they would go out of the city. So even after uh, everything that, went, that took place in the temple, he left on that night, it says in verse 19. And then verse 20, it says, as they were passing by, in the morning they saw a fig tree came up from his roots. And we looked into that whole narrative. But he's heading back to the temple the next day. It says... Uh, down a little bit farther in 27, that they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple, uh, which is crazy. He goes in, just makes a mess of the place, and then he goes back the next day, back to the temple. And it's there in verses 27 through 33 that we see the priests and the scribes and the elders uh, questioning the authority of Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority uh, are you teaching these things? And... uh, that's just the most foolish thing you could ever do with Jesus, right? Is to question his authority. But we get into chapter 12, and Jesus is still there in the temple. He's teaching these guys from the temple about the, the parable of the vineyard that we looked at that's like directly calling them out and pointing them out as these people who have killed all these prophets that God had sent to them. God sent his son to them, and they're about to kill him, and Jesus is fully aware of what they plan and intend to do with him. Uh, We see that Jesus is fielding questions on taxes. Who do we pay these taxes to? As they're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to trick him, uh, not to ask these legitimate questions, but they're just trying to uh, find fault with him. They're asking these questions about marriage. Uh, What is the, the greatest commandment, which seems to be more of a legitimate question that was one of sincerity but Jesus all the while he's in the temple fielding these questions and then Jesus kind of turns the tables on them a little bit and he asks them about David's Lord and David's son who is David's son and and how is he David's Lord how does that work and Jesus does to these scribes and Pharisees what they're trying to do to him they they're trying to trip him up and he gets them in this point where they're unable to answer. They're, uh, 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 I, don't, I don't know uh, how David's son can be David's Lord. And he has completely turned the tables around on them and pointed out their hypocrisy and um, shown the fact that they are the ones who are on the defensive. They're asking all these questions like they're in this place of authority. Jesus ultimately has the authority, right? And as he's leaving the temple, after pointing out all their hypocrisy, um, we're going to come to our text in Mark 13. But before we go there, I want to flip over to Matthew 23, where we see uh, a longer discourse on Jesus calling out the, the hypocrisy of these scribes and Pharisees. So in Matthew 23, I'll just start in 13. It says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, from people. For you do not 
enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. Remember, we looked at that last week. That's something that Mark said. Um, And for pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. But Matthew, he doesn't stop where Mark stopped. He just keeps going on. If you just glance your eyes down the page, he says over and over again, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. 16, Woe to you, blind guides. 17, You fools, you blind men. You blind men. Verse 19, just over and over, he is just handing it to him all the way down through here. Just woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you, you hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Over and over again, he's just delivering it to them. Again, while he's in the temple, just hours before he's going to be crucified, he's letting them know. The day after he's already gone in and cleared out the temple, he's not scared, he's not sitting back, he's not hiding in the shadows. He's calling them out, he's taking them to task. And this is all leading up to uh, our text, the Olivet Discourse, um, which takes place immediately after in verse 24, or chapter 24 of Matthew. Um, but before we get there, I want to point out to us verse 37 of Matthew 23. <coughs> so after he's called them out, this is what Jesus says. He says in Matthew 23:37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, just like the vineyard parable. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that, Andy, kind of going back to your question, is the the spiritual position today of Israel. Their house has been left desolate. They have denied their king. They've denied their Lord in large, right? We have some Jews who have bowed the knee and recognize that Jesus is king. But by and large, they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. However, one day they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All Israel will be saved. Not every individual Jew who's ever lived, but at some point in time, once uh, they have gone through an incredible amount of purging that we can read about in Revelation. Um, everybody who's left, they will bow the knee to King Jesus and recognize that he is their Messiah. And they'll finally come to an understanding of that someday. And we should be praying for the individual Jew up until then that they would see that and they would uh, come to Christ in repentance. <coughs> all right, so with all that groundwork being laid, let's turn back to Mark 13. And we'll see in Mark 13, 1, that they're now coming out of the temple. So with all this time that Jesus spent in the temple overturning tables and calling out these hypocrites, it says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And we'll just stop there for now. And so this temple that Jesus is now walking out of after... uh, all these different events that we've been focusing on in the last few chapters. This temple was considered one of the greatest wonders in the Roman world. It was incredible by all accounts. Uh, Its foundation stones were 40 feet long by 12 feet high by 18 feet wide. That is huge. Um, We have that number from Josephus. 40 feet, well he actually did uh, cubits. So I think it was like 25 cubits and uh, or would that be like eight, 
cubits high and 12 cubits wide. So these huge stones that were laid at the foundation of the temple. And remember, when we were going through and talking about Jesus going in and, and cleansing the temple and taking all these people out, we talked about how massive it was, how huge it was. It was 400 yards by 500 yards. That was the size of the temple court. So remember, we were talking about people going through and they were taking shortcuts to get from one part of the city to the other. Um, that's because it was so huge. That's some 40 football fields, just back to back, side to side. Uh, it took up one-sixth of the area of the city of Jerusalem. It was a massive building, not just a building, but the, the court area was massively huge. And remember that when this is taking place, when the disciples were looking at Jesus and they were saying, man, look at these amazing stones, look at this building. This was at least 30 years, some 30 years uh, before it was finished in AD 64. So there was, it, it still had an amazing amount of, of glory and splendor and people were looking at it like how amazing, but that glory and splendor in this man-made structure, we have to remember, uh, just continued to be added and develop and grow throughout the next 30 years as uh, Herod oversaw this production of the temple. And so, by all accounts, this was an amazing building. This was an amazing structure uh, that, that we see uh, in the temple. And that's what the disciples were recognizing. They were realizing and they were pointing out to Jesus. Uh, Josephus says that the largeness and fine workmanship was a surprising sight to the spectators to see what vast materials there were and with what great skill the work and with what great skill the workmanship was done. The wall of the front was all polished stone, insomuch that its fineness to such as had not seen it was incredible, and to such as had seen it was greatly amazing. So even for those who were used to it, walking by it every day, just like the disciples were used to it, it was still amazing. But to somebody who hadn't seen it, Josephus says it was incredible to just behold this the splendor of this temple. And so the disciples are pointing this out to Jesus. Look at all these great stones. Look at this great temple. And Jesus says, word, right? What, what a dope building. How amazing, right? No, what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond to them pointing out how incredible these stones are, how incredible this building is? Yeah, he, he doesn't just jump on the bandwagon of saying, yeah, this was... This is an amazing building, right? There's a lot of glory and a lot of splendor here. Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So he's kind of putting it in perspective for them and letting them know, as great as you think this is, this is all come, coming crashing down. This is all temporary, right? It's not something that is really going to last. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. It was all torn down stone by stone. Here's a later quote from Josephus. He says that Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest imminency, and so much of the wall as enclosed by the city on the west side. This wall was spared, but as for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation 
that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. They completely demolished it to such a degree that people who came by it later wouldn't even know there was something there. This great building that everybody else was just awestruck by whenever they saw it. Now you can't even tell that it was there because it was demolished so thoroughly by the Romans that came by and destroyed it. Each stone of the temple was overlaid with gold and it was later dismantled by the Roman soldiers so they could go and retrieve the gold. They wanted this gold for themselves and so that's why it was literally taken apart stone by stone, piece by piece. And as Jerry was alluding to earlier, it's super important to realize that this prophecy was fulfilled in a very literal sense. Uh, Jesus said, there's not one stone that's going to be left upon another. And it was fulfilled literally. And that should give us a, a good clue for how to understand the rest of what Jesus is about to say, that we should understand it to be fulfilled literally. All these Old Testament prophecies about Israel and the very specific land that they were going to inherit that was going to be theirs, not just for a time, but forever. We should understand those prophecies, those promises to be fulfilled literally, just as this was fulfilled literally, even as we see from Josephus' account that it's all gone. People didn't even know it was there. Any thoughts or questions to this point? Another thirty years or so. It was a sixty-some year endeavor. I don't have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't even last that long. Yeah. Six years later, seventy A.D., Romans came in and overthrew it and destroyed it just entirely. It was gone. All right. Well, because Jesus begins this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, uh, by speaking about the temple, many have understood that this entire section is to be understood as referring to 70 A.D., what Jerry was just mentioning, the, the going in and destroying of this temple by Rome. And 70 A.D. is absolutely an important day in history. Um, and it really does put a point of division amongst different groups, different religious groups, and how they view the Bible, how we view history. So I want to go through real quickly and um, give some understanding of these three different viewpoints. Uh, preterists teach that all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem. So this group of people, I wouldn't... Uh, placed into the category of Christians, even though a lot of them might. I think that this is an unorthodox position to say that everything that took place or everything that was prophesied in the Bible has already taken place. So they're not looking forward to a second coming of Jesus. They think that's already taken place. That's already happened. Um, they're not looking forward to any kind of future judgment. Um, all of that in the mind of a preterist is past. It's gone in 70 AD. Uh, another group, which is much more popular, would be the partial preterists. They believe that the vast majority of biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD, but they maintain a belief in the second coming and a resurrection and a judgment. So all of that is still future for a partial preterist. I still don't agree with them. I still think that 
Um, they're wrong about a lot of things having been fulfilled at 70 AD, but they're still maintaining that Jesus is going to come back. They're looking forward to a second coming. I think we can count them, or we can certainly count them within the group of Christianity. They're not uh, heretical in a uppercase H sense of the word. And then the third group, futurists, this is where I place myself, this is where our church stands. We believe that the majority of New Testament prophecy has yet to unfold. Uh, most futurists believe in a rapture, which again is where we stand at this church. We're looking forward to Jesus coming and taking his church out of here, and um, then a, a bunch of stuff is going to happen, right? That's where the wrath of God is being poured out on Israel and um, then we'll have the, the second coming, well, the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennial kingdom. That's where Jesus really will set up his literal physical kingdom, um, the kingdom that does exist now in a real sense, but in a spiritual sense. Um, so those are three different understandings of this passage, by and large, the, the Olivet Discourse that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, as well as uh, Revelation and a bunch of Old Testament prophetic texts as well. Any thoughts or questions at this point? No hard questions, though, Sam. I see something stewing in your head. Turning very slow. So, um, the preterists are are heretics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're saying there is no second coming of Christ. Yep. Um, and just as a plug, Jeremy debated the preterists, right? Mm-hmm. Somewhere, yeah. <laughs> is it is it on the OHPC YouTube page? Probably. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what stream that's on, but yeah, it's floating out there. You can just Google it, and that'll come up. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep going. All right. So let's look at verses three and four as the disciples question Jesus. So remember, they've just come out of the temple. Uh, They were amazed at the temple, and Jesus, referring to the destruction of the temple, says, you know what, this is going to be gone. And I think that's really important to, uh, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, to realize that Jesus is prefacing his next prophecies with this more near prophecy about the temple. That's going to give credence to what he says later on. So in verse 3, he says, or the text says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, and so we're on the east side of the temple, uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And so this section, known as the Olivet Discourse, takes place on the Mount of Olives as Jesus is sitting there and he's describing these events to his disciples just hours before his death. Uh, it's recorded here in Mark 13, in Matthew 24, and in Luke 21. And so those are three important chapters that kind of go together. And if we look at those chapters and kind of combine them, we, we can get a fuller understanding of the narrative. Uh, Matthew 24 is the longest and uh, most specific, I guess, of all those different chapters. So Matthew 13, remember each author is writing to a different audience with a different purpose, it's not quite as detailed and in-depth in length as Matthew 24. But it is the the longest discourse that we see throughout uh, all of Mark, where Jesus is just sitting down and teaching through one uh, 
one section. I think Mark 4 on the parables of the kingdom is probably the, the second within Mark. And I think that the upper room discourse in John is the longest throughout all the Gospels. All right, so once again, we see Jesus here is having a private conversation with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, uh, who's the brother of Peter. He's not usually there. We see Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, together quite a bit, but this time Andrew's thrown in there, and they're asking Jesus these private questions. These are the same four disciples that we saw Jesus first call to himself back in chapter 1, the four fishermen. And they're asking him, uh, what questions do they ask him in, in verse 4? How many questions do they ask him, and what are the questions that they ask him? When will these things be? What will be the sign? And when are all these things going to be fulfilled? I think you added an extra question in there. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, what will be the sign when all these things are Okay. Good. Yeah, two questions. So, when will these things be? That's the first question, right? Which he's going to answer second, actually. And then the second question he'll actually answer first. What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So, Mark records two questions for us there. Matthew records three questions. It says in Matthew 24, 3, Tell us, one, when will these things happen? Two, what will be the sign of your coming? And three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And so, in their mind, they're putting all these things together. The destruction of the temple, the sign of Jesus coming, and then the signs for the end of the age. They think, okay, the, the temple being destroyed, that's for sure got to be the end of the age. All that's got to be happening at one time. That's got to be speaking to the same things. That was their understanding. They automatically equated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age, uh, the establishment of the messianic kingdom of God. They thought all that's coming together, which is a misunderstanding, but that's where they were in their mindset because remember, they were expecting a physical kingdom from the Messiah, right? That was their expectation. Well, let's turn to Zechariah 14 and we'll see, get a little bit of insight as to why they were thinking these things, that they were all going to take place at the same time. Zechariah 14, which is speaking about the second coming. And I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 5. It says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. For the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. When the Lord, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Remember, that's where Jesus is preaching the sermon from, from the Mount of Olives. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that, the, that half of the mountain will be moved toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So you see how it talks about this great split in the Mount of Olives. And so they're thinking, okay, well, the temple's going to be gone. All these stones aren't going to be there not even one upon another. 
uh, that's going to be talking about the second coming. And so they're asking Jesus, when is going to be, when are you going to come? What is going to be the sign of your coming? What is going to be the sign of the end of the age? Because this talks about uh, the Lord, my God, will come and all of his holy ones with him. And so they're uh, equating these two different events as taking place together. And Jesus will make some differentiations as we go throughout Mark 13. Yes. because the entire Jewish religion was centered on the temple Passover all the feasts Um, they when they rejected their Messiah when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD the Jewish people uh, when they were dispersed all over the world had to develop a new way of worshiping God, basically. Um, yeah, the Jewish people, but not the Jews who embraced Christianity because right. Jesus was right. the fulfillment of all those Old Testament shadows. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. But yeah, for the Jews, they couldn't sacrifice their animals. They couldn't do all these uh, ordinances within the temple that they were required by their, by the their religious law to do. Yeah. All right, I want to read to you this quote from John Grasmick. He says, in reply to uh, these questions in Mark 4.4, Jesus skillfully wove together into a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. The near event, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the far event, the coming of the Son of Man in clouds of power and glory. The former local event was a forerunner of the latter universal event. In this way, Jesus followed the precedent of Old Testament prophets by predicting a far future event in terms of a near future event whose fulfillment at least some of his hearers would see. And then he puts in quotes there the, um, the transfiguration, the event of the transfiguration, how Jesus said, uh, some of you won't pass away until you see the Son of Man come in, in glory. And so what he's saying there is that this near event, the destruction of Jerusalem, was meant to be evidence that he was speaking truthfully about this farther event as well. The coming of the Son of Man and the different signs that he's going to give for that event. Because um, the, the near event was meant to verify what he was going to give later. It could be seen by uh, people who would live even within the same generation to see the destruction of the temple and that would offer evidence, verification for why they could trust his later event, um, so that people aren't like Peter reports in second, I think it's second Peter three, um, saying how how come your Messiah hasn't come back? It's been all these years and he still hasn't come back, but because Jesus gave this two part prophecy, people could point back and say, well, look, he gave this prophecy about the temple and that came to pass in a very literal way. And so we can trust what he told us about this far event that that's going to come to pass again in a very literal way. Does that make sense? Are there questions or thoughts there? All right. We got a lot today. I know it's hopefully it'll sink in. 
And this is just the, the groundwork for the rest of chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> All right, well, let's look at the, the latter half of this, verses 8, or 5 through 8, where Jesus begins to give an answer um, and encourages them not to be misled. Can I get somebody to read verses 5 through 8 for us, please? Mark 13, 5 through 8. Thanks. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. All right, thank you. All right, so we need to remember that Jesus is warning his friends about the, the coming of false Christ, and he's doing this just hours before his own death. Um, we're either in Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week at this point. And so he's, again, just hours away from going to the cross. And he wants to warn his followers, don't be dissuaded, don't be led astray by other false Christ who are going to come and they're going to do so in my name. Um, rather than starting off by giving them, by giving the disciples a, a direct answer, Jesus is first going to provide a few non-signs for them. He's going to give them some things that aren't going to be uh, demonstrative of his coming, of the end of the age. Uh, he's saying this is what you're, you're not looking for before he gets into what they should be looking for. And so as we go throughout these verses, keep an eye out for these uh, non-signs of is coming. And so uh, throughout this, I see five of these non-signs, and this is the first one that we see that he says that many will come saying, I am he, in verse 6, or literally, I am, just as Jesus said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. There are going to be others who come proclaiming, the invoking the holy name of God, trying to deceive many, saying that they are the Christ, that they are God in the flesh. And verse 22 adds that um, if possible, these false prophets, these false messiahs would draw away after them, even the elect, because they're going to be so convincing, so deceitful in the way that they present themselves. <coughs> and we've seen many people do this throughout the last 2,000 years. Many people come in the name of Christ saying they are the messiah, right? Uh, I looked up on Wikipedia the other day, and there were it was like split up into centuries. There were dozens per century of people who claimed the name of Christ and said they were the Messiah. Just a few notable ones for us. Uh, Krishna Venta started a cult in San Francisco. Uh, An Song Hong, uh, that's uh, it's part of the World Mission Society Church of God. Yeah, out of South Korea. It's pretty big. It, up in Ogden, they have a lot of people. And um, we did one of those Proverbs... 1817 on it, talking about the mother of God. I've met a few people who hold to this religion and uh, think that An Song Hong is Jesus in the flesh reincarnate. Uh, Jim Jones, the founder of the People's Temple. Charles Manson. Uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh, he founded the Nation of Yahweh, another cult. Um, and I've met people on the streets of Ogden who say that they themselves are Jesus. Out here at Onion Days, I met a man who said that he was Jesus, uh, the Dana's neighbor. Uh, he was involved in like some car accident or some tragic 
event or something. Now he thinks that he's Jesus. Uh, there are all kinds of people who will tell you that they are Jesus, that they are the incarnate Messiah. And Jesus warns everybody that's not how it's going to go down. And these verses can be kind of cavalier and um, just we, we can get used to them. But we have to really consider how much of a blessing these verses are to us. The fact that, um, yes, there are going to be imposters, there are going to be pretenders, there are going to be people who come in the name of Jesus, but Jesus told us that that was the case. And he told us that that's not how he's going to come. He's going to come in a completely different way. And so we don't need to be surprised when somebody stands up and says, hey, I'm Jesus. But had Jesus not given us these verses, then we'd kind of be in the dark. We'd be wondering, just like the disciples, hey, what are, what's going to be the sign? What, what's going to happen when you come? And so we should be incredibly thankful that Jesus laid out for us that that's not how he's going to come. Uh, Acts says that he's going to come back in the same way that he went. Uh, everybody's going to see it's going to be on the, the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back, and it's going to be obvious. And so when other people come, we need to ignore them. We need to recognize that's not Jesus, right? Uh, and so, again, throughout this section, he's telling us that these things that he's describing, these non-signs, they're not the end. They're merely the beginning of birth pains. And so he's telling his disciples, don't fall for these uh, Braxton Hicks contractions, right? These contractions that are just trying to trick you. Uh, they're not really the end. They're just leading up to the end. It's just the beginning of birth pains. And so birth pains in pregnancy, they increase in both intensity and frequency, right? When a woman has contractions, when she's about to give birth, they start off kind of slow and a few minutes apart, and then they increase in how soon they come and in the intensity that they come, and it gets worse and worse as time goes on. I'm sorry, Abby, I know. <laughs> if this is a surprise, uh, we, got, we got bigger problems. But they do, they get worse and worse as time goes on. Um, building up in frequency and in intensity. And so I want to go back and read from Isaiah. Isaiah talks about these birth pains. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll get there. Isaiah 13, 6 through 9. And Isaiah says there, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. So, even in the Old Testament, we see references of the end of this day of the Lord, the coming of Christ being referred to with this illustration of birth pangs, of these contractions that build up in frequency and intensity as time goes on. And so in verse 7, when it's speaking about wars and rumors of wars, uh, again, saying, don't be frightened, these things are going to be taking place, it, it's not the end. These wars and rumors of wars, um, wars speaking of more local observable wars, and rumors of wars speaking about wars of, of foreign countries going on from afar that people just hear about, um, they're, they're going to be there. There have always been wars and rumors of wars, but they're going to build up in intensity as the coming of the Lord draws near. And it says in verse 8, yeah, there are going to be these wars and rumors of wars, 
nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, this is refer- referring not just to small wars, but nations and nations and kingdoms and kingdoms. Um, it's talking like a, a world war, right? It's going to be building up even in intensity. Um, they will rise up. Um, this phrase is actually in the passive, which is kind of cool. So literally, they're going to be raised up by God. That nation will be raised up against nation. Kingdom will be raised up against kingdom. Um, just like Proverbs 21 tells us that the, the king is like rivers of water who's in the hands of the Lord, and he takes it and wields it wherever he wants, whatever direction he decides. Uh, God is even in control, in charge of these big national events. All right, so um, looking at verses 5 through 8, did you guys keep track of the the non-signs of Jesus, the things that he said, you don't need to worry, this isn't the end, it's just building up toward the end. What are the the non-signs that you guys see in those verses? (laughs) What's that? Yeah, false messiahs, right? People falsely claiming to be the messiah. We see that in verse 5 and 6. Yeah, good. And there's at least two more. Yeah, earthquakes and what else? Earthquakes and famines. And so, again, uh, these things are, as it says in verse 7, not yet the end. We don't need to be afraid. He's telling the disciples, don't be frightened. These things are going to happen. As it says in verse 8, they're merely the beginning of these birth pangs. And so the mere presence of these things isn't significant. It's not signifying. It's not a sign for anything. They've always been around, always been a reality. And we don't need to be worried that that means that Messiah is coming. They're going to build and uh, increase in frequency and intensity, just like uh, natural birth pains, natural contractions, uh, increase in intensity and frequency. As time goes on, so will all these things. The proclaiming of false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. But those events themselves don't mean that the messiah is like coming tomorrow, right? Thoughts or questions? think that the church is going to be here for the end, the end. I think that that's a time of Jacob's wrath, a time of Jacob's trouble that is reserved and preserved for Israel, that God is going to pour out his wrath on them in the, the day of the Lord, in the tribulation, and we won't be around for that. We're going to be with Jesus in heaven for that. Good. Any other thoughts, questions? Like this whole list 
despite the context of the passage, it uh -huh. seems. It's like, oh yeah, we got wars and rumors of war and nuclear war and earthquakes are getting more frequent and stuff. It's uh -huh. like, oh, that means Jesus is coming. Yeah, and I think Jesus was saying the opposite. Not that these are signs. Again, these are non-signs. We don't need to worry. We don't need to, um, like in, I think it's First uh, Thessalonians 5 and Second Thessalonians 3. Um, either way, there are two chapters in, in both those books, First and Second Thessalonians, where he has to tell the Thessalonians, you guys need to actually work because they're afraid that Jesus is coming and they're, they're not going to work. They're not doing anything. They're not being productive. They're not praying for Israel or, or other people. They're just so caught up in themselves that they're like, okay, well, Jesus come back tomorrow, so you know, just everything else is out the window. And Paul rebukes him for that. He says, no, you guys need to work. If man does not work, you shall not eat. Um, don't, don't be misled. Jesus hasn't come back. And um, he says here that there are these non-signs, so we don't need to, we need to carry on with life, realizing that, yes, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to come back for the church even prior to that. More imminently, Jesus can return at any point, right? Um, but we still need to carry on with our life and um, be faithful to the things that he's called us to do. And later on as we get down into Mark 13, he'll talk about his second coming and we'll get into that a little bit more. It'll be fun. Yeah, Andy? So one of the things that, um, I don't know, amusing is the right word, but um, this would lead people astray. When Christ returns, there's not going to be any mistake. No. None. Yep. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that in the meantime, that mankind can uh, put mass destruction on the, on the earth. I mean, nuclear wars, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. No. Um, and the destruction that would come with that is terrifying and terrible. But it, when Christ returns, there's not going to be any mistake about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, that's, it, it again, amusing is the wrong word, but, um, you know, there were people that called themselves Jesus that were in Sedona all the time. And, you know, it was some new age thing. You know, well, you need to love your neighbor and all these other things. It was yeah. a, a false imitation of the way that Christ came in the first century. Uh, but when Jesus comes again, he's coming as the judging wrathful king. Yeah, it'll be evident to everybody. There, is, there will be no mistake about it. It says down in verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is Christ, or behold, here he is, or he is there, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. He's already given us what's going to happen. He's already warned us about these people. So... We definitely shouldn't be falling prey to that. All right, let's pray and we'll fellowship some more. God, thank you again for who you are. Thank you for telling us these things ahead of time so we can know that when people rise up and
proclaim to be Christ, we can uh, we can just write them off. We can know they're uh, false Christ, false apostles. That when you do come back, uh, it will be an amazing thing, and we won't have to question at all. God, thank you for uh, for who you are. Thank you for your people. Help us to love one another as you loved us. Amen.